0: Molly, thank you so much. That's amazing. Uh, by the way, what an awesome name, Molly Divine. That sounds a lot better than Eric Harris. Uh, so, um, also need whatever energy drink April or uh, Amber's drink uh, drinking. I, I wish I had that kind of energy first thing in the morning. Coffee just doesn't seem to get me going quite like that. So, you guys catch me later and tell me which one it Red Bull, whatever it is. I don't know. So, hey, glad you guys are here. Glad you guys are doing well. We're going to continue in our Ecclesiastes, excuse me, series. Uh, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be there in a minute. You guys are online. Please join us as well at that portion. Uh, and remind that our elders are online. If you want to talk to them or get prayer at any point during the service. So uh, in case you're wondering how much longer Ecclesiastes is going to go, I actually sat down and mapped it out. And, and let's just say this. We're just going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> I won't tell you how long because I don't want you to have an end in sight and have an idea. If you get actually bored with it, like I'm sick of Ecclesiastes, uh, send it to my junk mail. I mean my email. Um, and I will be glad. No, I'm kidding. Kidding, kidding. Uh, so I've actually enjoyed it. Um, so with that being said, uh, I want to open up with this question real quick. Um, here it is. I want you to discuss with the people you're with. If you had one wish granted, what would you wish for? Think, think about that for birthday or whatever. You blow out those candles, whatever. If you could have one wish granted, what would you wish for? So go ahead, take a second and discuss with one another next to you. What would you wish for? Go. You guys are a quiet group today, making me very self-conscious up here, uh, hopefully saying I wish Eric would be done with this illustration, I don't know. I wish somebody were sitting next to Dale Absher, I don't know what it is today, so Dale, just yell it out, whatever it is, no. I don't know what you would wish for if you would known that, if you had it like, man, mine would be a, you know, 1967 Fastback Ford Mustang, man, that would be my wish right here, right now that works and runs and everything, <laughs> like I don't want just an old junker or anything like that. Um, there's actually a, a story in illustration I once heard about this, it said three men were trapped on an island, and they were there and they found a genie's lamp, Go, lo and behold, on this island, and they agreed they will each get one wish. So the first man wished he was rich and famous so that more people would be searching for him. So the genie granted his wish, and after four weeks of the biggest search the world has ever seen, they found him and brought him home. It was amazing second man had his wish, and he said, I wish I was more talented so I could create or build something that that could get me off this island. And so the genie granted his wish, and so the man spent the next two weeks cutting down a tree and make crafting a boat and rowed himself to safety off the island. Man, what an amazing gift talent this guy had. The third guy uh, took his opportunity. He said, I wish I was smarter or wiser so he could figure out the best way to get off the island. And so the genie granted his wish, and the man thanked the genie for his newfound wisdom, turned around, and walked off the bridge that was behind them the whole time. Now, I don't know if that's a joke or a story regardless. The point is this. It's funny how sometimes what we think we need is not really what we need. It's really what we want, isn't it? Like really the whole goal is to get off the island, but really there's an underlying tone of really I just want to be known, I want to be popular, I want to be famous, and I hope in the end I get this as well. I really want to have wealth, I want to have, I want to have wealth, or I want to have extreme giftedness. In reality, what we need is something completely different. Uh, Today we're kind of talking about this idea of contentment. I'd rather title it conviction because that's how it makes me feel. Uh, But it's contentment, it's talking about contentment. As a matter of fact, the question is this, what does it take to be content? That's a challenging thing in this season right now where it seems like discontent has plagued all of us. And can I just say, it's not unique to the COVID era. It's something we've dealt with for a long time. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, I think I've even seen more discontentment even in Deer Creek. Of all the towns I've lived in, from being in Shawnee to Afton, small town Oklahoma, to Chickasha, to Deer Creek, there's more discontentment here. And I think Solomon unpacks and talks about why that is. Now, when I, when I say contentment, it's important to understand a good biblical definition. Uh, the Greek word, which comes from the atarchus, is translated content, carries this idea uh, of self-contained or adequate in other words, needing nothing from the outside and saying everything I need is found in this one thing. So Solomon unpacks and talks about this idea of contentment and brings a whole bunch of other things to light in verses uh, chapter 5, verse 8, all the way through 612, which is a lot to read. So we're going to unpack it in sections. Now I'd love to read it all through, but I'm going to be honest, even as I worked on this, it seemed like just ramblings of a man just all over the place. But there is a thread of consistency that's going through here. And so we're going to break it down in sections, unpack it, and, and kind of tie in a point, kind of a of what he's saying. So let's start with chapter 5, verse 8 through 17. Look what it says. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. You see, the profit from the land is taken by all, and the king is served by the field. It says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. See, this too is futile, or hevel, as we've t- talked about in the past. So when good things increase, the, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? See, the sleep of a worker... Is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits no sleep. See, there's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun. Wealth kept by his owner uh, by his own harm. The, the wealth was lost in a bad venture. So when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so will he go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing from his efforts uh, that he can carry out with his hands. It says this too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so will he go. What, what does one then gain who struggles with the win? What is more... He eats in darkness all his days with much frustration and sickness and anger. Now, again, Ecclesiastes is an interesting thing, and he's trying to understand wisdom and saying, listen, a lot of times we think if we live wisely, everything comes out great, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so he's trying to reframe our understanding on wisdom. It's a compliment uh, to uh, Proverbs, another book that he wrote. Um, And so let's just start kind of unpacking right there. He starts with verse 8 through 9, a very cynical thing. He talks about the world is driven by discontent. He says, You see it in the political powers. You see one official more or less uh, abusing and using other people, using injustice uh, and s- to serve another official. And all of it's driven by this matter of discontent. And it's easy for us right now or any time in history to go, Man, look at the government. It is so jaded. It's so wrong. He's like, It is. The world is driven by this. Don't be astonished when you see injustice and righteous uh, uh, without all these sort of things uh, being deprived going on. He says, Don't be astonished. By this. Why is that? Because the world's driven. By discontent. People will often use and abuse their power and their position for their own gratification. Why? Because they're discontent with what's going on. Now, when you first read this, it sounds like an anti-political ploy, like anti-government, but he's not actually saying that. As a matter of fact, at the end, he kind of talks about it's a necessity. He says the profit from the land is taken by all, but the king is served by the field. It's not an anti government sort of thing. As a matter of fact, the New American Commentary says this. It says, Although the teacher recognizes the corruption and abuse inherent in any political system, he is not an anarchist. See, the government may be evil, but he's talking about it's a kind of a necessary evil that we need to have. And he's saying, But you're going to see this because they're driven by discontent. He continues on in verse 10, talks about how some things will never satisfy. He said, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is heaven. He's like, you might love silver, but the more silver you get, you're never really satisfied with the amount of silver you have. You might want more wealth, but the more wealth you get, you never find yourself really satisfied. Like, man, I'm happy with how much I made. There's always more to be had, more to be pursued, more to get. And so he keeps going. Look what he says in verse, uh, where am I at? 11. He says, when good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit of the owner except to gaze them with his own eyes? It's like the more you get, the more responsibilities that come with those things, and the more responsibilities, the more it seems other people seem to trickle out what you need, right? The more you get, the more it seems like government takes some, kids take some, everything takes some, everyone takes. What's the profit just to make more and watch other people take what you've worked hard for and get? It's just a never-ending process. You see, the more money I have, the more problems I get, someone once wisely said. It just never does that. As a matter of fact, verse 12, he says, The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. He's like, the people who have the best night's sleep, who rest, who have the most peace, are the ones who actually have very little because there's not many responsibilities come with it. But those who have a lot tend to stay up late thinking about all they still have to do, all their responsibilities they have. I think about this in my own life whenever I was in high school and how I really had no responsibilities and stuff and I can remember that when I went to college and I had more responsibility. I think, man, I had it in Hade in high school where you know the only responsibility I had was to take care of my car and to keep my hot girlfriend happy. You know, and that was my drive in life, working at Fazoli's, making an honest buck, doing whatever I can just to, so I could go on dates with her and all this sort of stuff. And then I went to college and suddenly I got married and it's like, man, my responsibilities changed. Now I have bills. I didn't know what that was. I remember the first time I got a mortgage bill, I had to call my mom and say, how do I write, how do I fill out a check? I've never done this before. Like, you want talk about embarrassing. Like, I did not know what that looked like. My responsibilities go up, but then I think of now, I'm making more money than I've ever made now, and yet I'm more stressed about what I have, and there's nonstop to what's going on. The lawn constantly needs care. I need this taken care of. My kids need to go to the doctor. I need to take care of this car, take care of this house. All these responsibilities go up, and more it seems to be funneled out. You see, the more I had, the more stressed I became. Can, can you relate or identify with that notion? If you can't, then you don't remember high school or whatever it is, where it's like I had no responsibilities then, and, and I slept well. I never remember myself in high school staying up late at night thinking, how am I going to pay my car bill? Like, that, that just never happened in high school. Didn't think about that sort of stuff. But yet now, stuff that can keep us and consume us. And see, it's, listen, it, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And then in verse 13, he talks about, says, listen, here's a real-life observation I want to tell you about. He says, there's a sickening tragedy. He goes, I have seen. It means I've actually witnessed this in my own life. He says, wealth kept by its owner to his own harm. You see, there was wealth lost by an adventurer. Uh, by, by venture, sorry. So when the fathered his son, he was empty-handed. You're this guy who spent his whole life absorbing wealth and trying to get wealthy and thought that was the meaning of life and this would make me happy. And in one bad business venture, all of it's gone. He has a kid. He has nothing to pass on to his children. Nothing of, of wealth in his eyes. And he's thinking, man, what, what was all that work for? And you keep reading. He says, the wealth was lost. Uh, sorry, verse 18. He says, as he came from his mother, so will he go naked as he came. He will take nothing from his efforts. All his life was consumed with getting the stuff and being discontent about what he didn't have to where he did finally have and he lost it all. And what happens? He leaves life just as he started life with nothing and still discontent with what's going on. He said, this is a sickening tragedy, verse 16. Exactly as he comes, he will go. What does one gain from his struggles win? What was sad is, verse 17, so what is more, he eats in darkness all of his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. That, that's a metaphor pointing to the fact that um, he's, he's spent his whole life consumed with wealth, that he's neglected relationships and people. It's a metaphor showing that even at his table, he's so consumed with his wealth that he has no one to share anything in life with. It, it kind of, if you remember this old song, The Cats in the Cradle, you remember that song? The whole situation where someone, his dad is like, I just want to make money, and the son's like, Dad, when can we play? And he goes, uh, not today, I don't know when, but we'll, we'll do it then, whenever it is. And the whole life he goes through this phase of saying, you know, next, tomorrow, tomorrow, another day we'll spend time together, son, we'll do this. And when he gets old, now he wants to spend time with his son. And what happens? His son carries on the same thing. And his dad's saying, hey, son, when can we spend time together? And his son's like, I don't know when, but not today. And we spend our whole life consuming this stuff, and yet we miss out and we have joyless life because we're so consumed and we miss the relationships we have. Well, let me ask you this, like, what have you missed out on in the pursuit of More. What, what relationships have you sacrificed? Times with kids you've sacrificed. Time with family. Can, can I tell you, I had this situation. I got convicted from preaching a, a few weeks back on this very thing, talking about work. And Solomon talks about how you work so hard only to pass it on to someone that doesn't appreciate it. And all you get are these restless nights, this grief, this sorrow. And that as I'm preaching that to you guys, I'm literally struck right between the eyes. Of, this is me. He's reading from my playbook. And that following weekend, Emily was gone at a wedding, and I had the kids to myself, and I'm sitting there, on Friday, which is my day off, I, I pick up my laptop, and I start to work, and Addie looks at me and says, Daddy, and it's just me and the girls this weekend, one of the few weekends I have, and she says, Daddy, are you going to work? And, and I was suddenly harken back to what I preached on the previous Sunday, and I said, whatever it is can wait till Monday, it's not that important. Like, like a sermon will get writ eventually. Like, whatever research, it will get done. And and frankly, what's that loss? If I deprive a little bit, my time with my kids is so important. I set it down. That was the best weekend I've ever had with my girls is spending time with them. And yeah, how many weekends have I missed? Because I'm so consumed on achieving, on doing the next thing. I'm so discontent, and I miss out on relationships. The point, the summary he's trying to say is this. Now, listen, if I can summarize this section, he's saying this. Wanting more will always leave you with having less. That, that pursuit of more will always leave you with the feeling like you don't have enough. Isn't that true? I want more, I want more, and more, and as more as you can imagine, what do you feel like? Man, I have more than I've ever had, and yet in my situation, I feel like I've had less than I've ever, I, like I need more. I'm just not satisfied. He's saying you'll never do it. And so the question he begs for us is, listen, when will we pay attention to what we do have rather than what we don't have? We get so consumed by it. And so he continues on. Look at verse uh, chapter 5, verse 18 through uh, 6. Look what he says. He says, verse 18, he said, here is what I have found to be good. He starts off with a piece of advice on contentment. He says, what well, appeared like I've seen to be good, like a literally witnessed, it's appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life. See, God has given him this because uh, it is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them. Uh, take his reward and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. Solomon's personal advice he comes and talks about commitment he's saying in essence saying it's better to enjoy the day the lord has given you than to dread the present and hopes for the future it's better enjoy what god has actually given you today than to dread what you have right now in hopes of what could be like man if just tomorrow be happier he says it's appropriate to enjoy to live life to enjoy every minute what's going on Man, look at what i have at home you know this is amazing look what i get to enjoy he's like this is actually your gift your reward from god Like, he's given you this to enjoy. As a matter of fact, verse 19, he has allowed us, like, if we would take the time, he has allowed us to put that feeling in our heart to actually enjoy it and appreciate it. Now, you're saying, I can't enjoy it. Like, God has placed that in your heart. The question is, are you willing to accept that gift and say, you know what, God, I understand I could think of more, but for whatever reason, this is what you gave me, and I know you're good, and I know that you know what's best for me, and you've allowed me to come enjoy I love verse twenty. It says, "God has keep them preoccupied uh, with this work." In other words, people who really come to a point to see what God has given them as a gift, as a reward, and enjoy it, and God is loud, and you appreciate that. They don't live life in the what ifs. They don't live. They're so preoccupied with where they are and what God has given them that they don't start thinking, "Man, what if I had this? I mean, what if? What if tomorrow? What if that?" Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle with that because I'm like, I really have trouble enjoying what's gone, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says God allows me. He's placed that ability in my heart, and yet I can't find ways to enjoy it. If you don't know what this is like in your current situation, the best illustration I've seen true in mine and Emily's life and every other situation I've been a part of is weddings. You ever been a part of a wedding? Weddings, you do all this work and all this stress and all this effort go into it. And your wedding day comes, what happens? You spend all the time stressing about what's not going well. The flowers are not arranged exactly as I like. This person is not really set exactly what's going on to the point that you don't even get to enjoy your wedding. And you look at the end of it and it's all a blur and you don't remember much about it. Rather than people who just get to come and sit and just enjoy the wedding. And yet we spend all this time. Can I tell you, I don't remember anything about my wedding. We're so thinking about all this stuff going on. I was so stressed for myself because I went to get dressed and my pants ripped halfway down right here and we duct taped them together. So the whole time I'm standing up there, I'm convinced at any point my pants are going to fall down in the middle of the service. And to make it even worse, I'm up there and I'm nervous, I'm sweating, like I'm just freaking out. And my pastor puts his Bible up and he asks me and Emily to put our hands on the Bible to pray. I put my hand on the Bible and I'm sweating so much that my hand glues to his Bible. And I go to take my hand, and I'm literally ripping the page out of his Bible right there. I'm so consumed that this looks so foolish that I'm really, I, I'm not even enjoying the fact that my new bride is right in front of me. Now, that's the guy's perspective, okay? <laughs> I know a girl's perspective is much, much different. But you can identify in some way, shape, or form where we just, listen, we have the ability to enjoy it. A matter of fact, he continues on and says, listen, I, let me contrast that with someone who hasn't been able to do this. In verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. He said, here's a tragedy I have observed. In other words, I've seen this to be true. He said, it weighs heavily on humans. God gives person riches, wealth, honor, so he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God does not let him enjoy them. I think that's interesting. He's like, God actually gives them everything they could possibly want, but because their desires on other stuff and they're not able to enjoy that they don't they can't enjoy it. God has actually removed that ability to enjoy it because they're so consumed with it so much. Like God, in one instance, when we become content, when we pursue contentment, God allows us to have it. When we pursue more, God removes the ability to enjoy what we have, to the point that I think is interesting. After that, he says, um, he says instead a stranger will enjoy them. Now a the stranger is interesting because I'll come back to that. He says this is Hevel and sickening tragedy. He says, a man uh, may father a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives, if he's not satisfied by good things and does not even have a proper burial. I say that a stillborn is better off than he. Ooh, that is heavy. He says, for he comes in heaven and he goes in darkness, and his name is shrouded in darkness. It says, though a stillborn child does not see the sun and is not conscious, it has more rest than he. And if a person lives a thousand years twice but does not experience happiness, do not both go to the same place. See, all a persons labors for a stomach, and yet the appetite is never satisfied. He describes a real-life observation. And in verse 2, he talks about, says, you can spend all your life consuming this wealth, and who actually enjoys it? A stranger enjoys it. Now, that's weird, because for us, what happens with your wealth most of the time, right? Hopefully, with your wealth once you die, where does it go to? Your children, hopefully, right? They inherit it. A stranger doesn't get your inheritance. Why does he say a stranger? Because this person has no relations to his family to the point that when he dies, his stranger, his kids, he has no relationship with them. Get this and take it on. Don't believe me? It continues on when he talks about the burial. They say he does not have a proper burial. In this time, when you'd be buried, they'd have this huge lamenting. It'd be a week long. Why does he not have a proper burial? Because his family does not lament his death. They have no relationship with him. He's just a stranger you just need to put in the ground. Do you get that? How sickening is that? All my life is to pass on something to some stranger, my kids, that when I die would say, thank goodness he's gone. Whew. Man, he says, if that's not sad enough, he goes, you want to know who lives a better life? A stillborn child. A child who comes to this world and maybe only lives a matter of seconds. They have accomplished and lived more life and have more restful nights than a person who lives this sort of way. They, they, let that sink in. A stillborn child accomplishes them more than a person that lives like this and lives better than they ever did. Like, if I could paraphrase one through seven, what he's saying, he's saying this, nothing is more pitiful than people who are rich in life and family. He talks about old age, but lack the awareness to appreciate it. No one's more pitiful. And people look, man, I'm so dissatisfied. Like, are you kidding me? Look at your children. Look, look at how old, look at your life of how long you've lived, and yet you look and you're discontent because you don't have stuff? Are you, are you kidding me right now? You know who's more content is a child that doesn't even really get to taste the breath of life. And in the end, what happens to them both? They both die and go to the same place. They both experience the same thing. He ends with verse 7. He says, all a person's labors for a stomach, yet the appetite is never satisfied. All your work is just to fill this appetite that's never really quenched. You're, you're always hungry. I don't know what that meant until I had my daughter, Hallie. She always eats. I mean, we, like, that's all she does is eat throughout the day. And I'm like, that's what it looks like to never be satisfied in food. She never stops munching on food. I guarantee you she's not in here right now. She's back there munching on food. That's what she does. Like, it's just, it's never satisfied. The point I think he's summarizing right here in all these verses that I just read, these, these sections is this, is what you have is better than what you could get emphasize those two words. What you have is better than what you could get. And yet, too often we're so focused on what we don't have. and think, man, if I, if I could have this, if I could have this, my life would be so much better. like, no, it's what you have is better. As a matter of fact, verse 9, he, sees, he uses this better statement. He says, better what the eye sees than wondering desire. So this too is heavily a pursuit of the whim. He's like, it's better to appreciate what you can actually see than what you desire and you can't. It's kind of this old adage you maybe heard before that uh, a bird in the hand is, better than worth, is worth more than two in the bush. You ever heard that before? You know? I didn't really fully appreciate that until I was reading this when I was saying this. When you actually have one bird in the hand, and yet the whole time you're thinking, I bet there's two birds in that bush right there. If I would just let this one go, I could go get more and grasp, them. and yet you go in and what? Might come back with nothing. I remember our teacher in elementary school, when we were going through proverbial sayings, said that. He goes, a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. A student raised their hand and goes, but I don't like birds. The teacher's like, I don't think you're getting the meaning of what's going on here. But yet, it's same true in the same sense, isn't it? We're just so discontent. What you have is better than what you could get. But he doesn't stop there because he ends with a very interesting part, which brings it back to our relationship with God. He says, whatever exists was given its name long ago it's known that man, what mankind is. He is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility or Well, What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the few days of his futile life? He spins like shadows. Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? If you'll indulge me, I love a New Living translation of this. They say it like this. Everything has already been decided said it was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use in arguing with God about your destiny. There's no use in arguing with God about what could be or what you could have. He's saying in verse 10, like, listen, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God does. So quit trying to tell God what would make me happy tomorrow in my life. Think of it this way. I always tell God, like, man, man if I actually got $10,000 today, man, I'd be so happy, man. God, if you'd give me my life, I could pay bills, everything would be easier. If you just dropped a $10,000 bill in my lap, man, if you just brought that to my lap, would I still be content if I got $10,000 today and tomorrow I got $20,000 in repairs in my house that suddenly come up? How valuable would that $10,000 be? The next day, i would be eventually going, man, if I had $30,000, it'd take care of my issues I had now today and fix it. Like, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So quit trying to wrestle with God. God has given you exactly what he knows you need. And so learn to appreciate it. His point is this. What you think doesn't compare to what God actually knows. What you think might make you happy, what you think might bring contentment, what you think might make my life complete, does not compare to what God actually knows. Let me say it in a different way in case that doesn't hit home. Let me say it like this. God's hindsight is better than your foresight. God's looking back and goes, you have no idea what you're talking about, my friend. It's much better than what you're trying to predict the future is going to look like. And so quit trying to wrestle with God and say, God, I would just be happy if. God knows, God gives. The question is, do you trust Now, all of us have something, if I'm willing to beg, we go around with a microphone to each person, what in your life, you're discontent, you know that thing that's stirring in your heart right now. What is that thing? Now, what I love about this is Solomon is the wisest guy the world has ever seen. But there's wisdom that not even Solomon can comprehend that me and you know. You need to understand this. Paul talks about it. Like Paul explains, like Solomon's saying, I, I think I kind of grasp, I think I can kind of fuzzily see the picture of what contentment is. But Paul actually, in Philippians chapter 4, says, I know the secret of contentment. Now, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you if you want, but he says this the secret, Paul, me and you know something that only Solomon can dream of. Now, if you'll indulge me for a second, listen to what he says. Paul says, I do not say this out of me. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I love, he's like, listen, I know what contentment is, and there's two things you understand. First thing, it's a learned trait. It's not something that comes naturally. I've learned to be content, and my circumstances do not dictate it. There's not something in my life like, well, if this would be taken care of. No, no, circumstances do not affect my contentment, and it's a learned trait. As a matter of fact, he begins to unpack that right after that. He says, I know both how to make with little, and I know how to do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being contentment. Paul, what is the secret? Tell me the secret. He says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether abundance or need. He's like, listen, I don't care if I have a lot, if I have nothing. I don't care if i got a full buffet or I'm starving to death. Either way, I know the secret of contentment. What is the secret, Paul? And he says it in the very next verse, which is some of the most, un- this misquoted verse. He says, I'm able to do all things through him who gives me strength. That the secret through contentment, he says, is in my relationship with Jesus Christ. I have everything I need. I Understand this. Christ is the fulfillment of contentment. And that's why Solomon could never speak of wisdom. He understood that a Messiah would someday come, but he could never fully grasp who Jesus Christ would be. Jesus Christ has come, and Paul is saying, listen, when I realize I have Jesus Christ... I have seen contentment at its finest. That is what wisdom looks like in contentment. And when I see that, there's nothing else on this world that compares. I think of an illustration, forgive me for this, it's one of my favorite TV shows is The Office. And there's an episode where Michael Scott, the main character, he's the boss, is towards the end, and he's going to promote, pr- propose to his fiance, the girl that he loves, Holly Flack. He loves her. And so they walk her down this aisle, and all the employees are standing there. And he's walking to the end so he can propose to her, as he walks by, each person in the room stands up and says, Holly, will you marry me? And she says, no. And he keeps going, and goes to the next person, and the next employee looks at her and says, Holly, will you marry me? And she says, no. Person by person by person goes through every option and comes to the end of the road and it's just her and Michael. And Michael says, Holly, will you marry me? And she says, yes. Can I tell you something? When it comes to Christ and we see Christ, we should treat the world the same way. When the world comes and says, hey, will you marry me? We should say, no. I, I have what I want at the end of this hour. It's Jesus Christ. as my relationship with him. Now, now, can I say, if that sounds cliche or churchy, you, you probably don't understand what I'm talking about. It, it's probably not wrapping up for you. If you're not content, here's one of two things that have to be true. Listen, and this is according to Paul and Solomon together. If you're not content, one, it means you don't have Jesus. It means you don't have it. You haven't experienced the taste of greatness in your life. It means you need salvation. No wonder you're discontent. Because the only thing that can bring contentment in your life you haven't experienced and enjoyed so that's either one truth that has to be true, or, or the second thing has to be true, if you feel like you are saved, as this, you don't understand what you have in Jesus. And that's a need and a call for discipleship. Our call of our church was to develop faithful followers, and that's something you need to start doing in your life. I equate it to my grandmother when she got an iPhone. She's walking out with an iPhone, and she's, used, I'm like, have you used Siri? She goes, what's a sorry? I said, no, a Siri. Grandma, do you not know what a Siri is? Have you used the internet? She goes, this thing has internet? I'm like, yes, it has internet. Like, what are you paying for? She has every capability, but she doesn't understand what it's capable of, and she's missing out so much. And too many of us walk around Jesus Christ not realizing what we have in our hands and not realizing that, listen, this is the fulfillment of contentment. I don't know where you're at in your life. If you're struggling with discontentment, can I tell you something? This is why I call it conviction. One of these two things has to be true. So which is it? Do you not know Jesus Christ? Or do you not understand who Jesus Christ is in your life? Either one of those, if you're finding yourself discontent, calls for a response from you to do something about it. Because if not, you're going to walk out those doors going right back, doing everything like, man, if I just had this, if just, if just, if just, and if just will never come. It won't. So here's my plea with you. Your head bowed, your eyes closed. Would, would, you just, would you just allow God to stir in your heart? Bowing your heads and close your eyes is not some holy religious thing. It's taking away from distractions and saying, God, I want to tune out everything going on around me. And God, what do you want me to take right now from this? What do I need to do? And if your head bows, your eyes closed, if you're feeling that tugging, you're feeling that lead, like God's telling me, I need to go give my life to Christ. Listen, if you're online, same thing. You get on right now and say, hey, I need Jesus Christ. They might be dropping a prayer app right now. You go to that. You guys here in person, listen, maybe you need to come over here. One of our elders will be here. I'll be over here after service. I'd love nothing more to share to you the gospel that has changed my life. If you know you've put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, you know you're a child of God, listen, then start walking contentment. If you don't know what that looks like, spend time in this word. Read what it says. Live what it says. And find yourself walking in true contentment. Maybe it's a call to rededication. Lord, I've, 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 I've lost it. I want to give myself to you today and make a new today. What will you do? As so your head bows, eyes close, I just want to pray over you and allow God just to stir in your heart and respond whatever way you need. Father God, you are good. You are present. You you are the fulfillment of contentment in my life. I'm so sorry that I've chased other things. I'm so sorry I've got consumed with stuff, with money, with, with having nicer things, of looking around at other people and saying, man, I wish I could be like them, or I wish I could be a better husband like this person, or I, I wish I could be a better father like this person, or, or whatever it is. God, I, I just, I pray, I pray you'd help me to find contentment in you. Convict my heart of those areas that I know that I need to turn over to you. God, I pray this room that people would do the same. I pray those online people would do the same. God, help us find joy in you. God, we love you and praise you, and thank you for giving us wisdom that not even Solomon could imagine. You're good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you guys for coming to worship me today. If you want to come talk to me after service, I'd love nothing more to share hope and truth I have. It's not anything in me. It's what Scripture has told me. Um, if you want to, on your way out, we have offering. You can give. There's buckets in there. I encourage you to give your offering and tithes that way. Or you can go online and give. You guys online. There's a place you can go. Click on Forgiving. And I, I encourage you to do that. Be faithful to that. If God has blessed you in this season, listen, you, you need to be faithful. You need to maybe be more than faithful in this season so that we can go and minister to other people. If you're struggling this season, listen, don't put a burden on yourself that not even you can get out of. Turn to the Lord and say, God, how can you use me in this season? If we can help you as a church, reach out to us. Let us know because we are here for you and we love you. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you guys for attending online. We're going to continue to worship. So Molly, will you lead us?